Story Q Podcast, Episode 16. Hi, I'm Frank Erickson. Welcome to the Story Q Podcast. It is our pleasure to have you along on this Friday before Christmas. Just a couple more days and the big holiday. Probably the biggest holiday of the season, isn't it? Heck, it's got to be. I mean, Thanksgiving's close, but you don't spend a month preparing for Thanksgiving. Although, if you want to have the day come out right, I guess you do. But here we are a week away from Christmas, and this is our final podcast of 2015. And we have an amazing guest. Uh, you may or may not have heard of her, but after this, you're going to, if you have, have you never heard of her, you will want to know about her after you listen to what she has to say. Her name is Molly Stevens, and let me tell you just a little bit about her. Molly Stevens is a food writer, cookbook author, editor, and cooking teacher living in northern Vermont. Her cookbook, All About Roasting, A New Approach to a Classic Art, won a 2012 James Beard Foundation Award and two International Association of Culinary Professionals Awards. Previously, her cookbook, All About Braising, The Art of Uncomplicated Cooking, also won a 2005 James Beard Award and an International Association of Culinary Professionals Award. Molly's articles and recipes appear regularly in Fine Cooking Magazine, where she's also a contributing editor. She has contributed regularly to Savore, Bon Appetit, and Eating Well magazines. Her recipes and tips have also appeared in The Wall Street Journal, Every Day with Rachel Ray, Real Simple, Yankee, Easy Living, Drinks, Real Food, and House and Garden. From 2000 through 2005, Molly co-edited the annual series The Best American Recipes with Fran McCullough. In 2006, Molly and Fran culminated the series by publishing the 150 Best American Recipes, Indispensable Dishes from Legendary Chefs and Undiscovered Cooks. Previously... Molly co-authored One Potato, Two Potato with Roy Finnamore. She also wrote New England, part of the Williams-Sonoma New America Cooking Series. Past editorial projects include Williams-Sonoma Kitchen Companion, The All-New Joy of Cooking, and several of Anne Willen's books, including Country Cooking of France, From My Chateau Kitchen, and Cooking with Wine. Molly has been described in the New York Times Book Review as a beautifully clear writer who likes to teach. Classically trained in professional kitchens in France, Molly has directed programs and taught at the French Culinary Institute, the New England Culinary Institute, and Le Col de Cuisine de Varennes in Burgundy, France, and Venice, Italy. She continues to travel and teach cooking classes across the country. Molly lives in Burlington, Vermont, and serves on the board of directors of the Interval Center, which is an organization that promotes strengthening community food systems. Without further ado, here's my interview with Molly Stevens. Molly, how are you doing? Hi, Frank. Great. Thank you so much for taking time out of your ultra busy career and I'm sure ultra busy day to be on the Story Cube podcast. We appreciate it very much. My pleasure. You know, as I was reading the uh, kind of uh, the introduction and uh, telling everybody what your resume is like, uh, I'm, I'm going, how does this woman seems like she's been at this since she was about five years old, but chef, writer, which came first? Well, a cook probably. I mean, I've always cooked. Um, I came from a family of good cooks and nothing fancy. We just ate at home all the time. So there was always something to be done in the kitchen and I was often there. When I started in school, then I dreamed of being a writer, but I had 
sort of, you know, romantic notions of what that meant. So I quickly reality dawned and I needed a job. So the job was cook always. Mm -hmm. Do you feel today you're more of a writer than a chef or is it kind of a kind of a collective agreement between the two? It's definitely a collective agreement, and I would throw cooking teacher in there, too. I often think that I got out of restaurant kitchens pretty early on and and made my way into more culinary education and chef instructor and those types of roles. So for me, teaching is really, really what I love to do, and that's what inspires most of the writing. Now, if if you told me you can only do one thing for the rest of your life, cook, write, or teach, it would have to be cook because I can't live if I can't cook. So, I mean, that's where my joy comes is in the cooking. Do you feel you have more of a passion for the teaching end? Certainly than production or commercial, you know, restaurant work professionally. So if I can teach and professionally, then, then, um, I, and I love to do it. I just, I really feel like we would solve so many of the world's problems, really, if we all just cooked for ourselves and our friends and our families. It's just, it's, uh, it's, um, better for the environment. It's better for our health. It's better for, I think, for our soul, for everything. So I love to cook. Yep. No argument here. Yeah. As I was reading, your resume on your website, which is your website's very impressive and your resume is totally impressive. In fact, it reads like that of a modern day Julia Child. Is that a fair description? Oh, wow. Gosh. Um, I know. I mean, she she uh, I mean, I'm flattered. I'm a little um, flabbergasted, flattered. But, you know, Julia just paved the way for so many others and i mean julia she was went to france went overseas during the second world war she was a a woman working you know in kitchens when there weren't women in kitchens um she was introducing french food to americans before the whole culinary renaissance happened in america so i really i mean she was a real a true icon and i know your listeners and and uh, will agree i mean we wouldn't be anywhere near where we were today if it weren't for julia um Having said that, I her, I just think sometimes when I write my recipes, and I know we've talked about a little bit about my recipes, but I think about Julia's recipes and her willingness to write a twelve-page instruction on how to make a baguette, and I just love that. <laughs> so, um, no, I think I owe and many others owe a great debt to Julia. I think a lot of people uh, in the in the cooking. Uh, culinary industry would certainly agree with you 100% on that. You mentioned recipes, and I want to talk about that because that's sort of your thing. Your books are filled with recipes. What is the process of developing a recipe? Is it just trial and error until you kind of strike culinary gold? Yeah, that's a great question, Frank. It's it, I, My inspirations come from a number of places. Sometimes they're, so for example, I'm writing a book on roasting. Well, I know I need some good roast beef in there. So I'll, I do research. I look at other books. I have a pretty large cookbook library, um, and reference library. Um, I might have a dish at a restaurant or at a friend's house and be, wow, that's really good. I want to figure out how to make that. Or I might just be at the market and see something that looks, that excites me and, and I bring it home. And then, and then it is trial and error. I mean, I've been at it long enough that there's certain things um, I don't try anymore, but but yeah, I, I just start cooking, and and it's interesting because sometimes 
in order to put it in a book, I really feel like the recipe has something, has to offer more than just dinner. It has to either solve a problem or be something a little more special than you might make on your own. Um, And so it's a tricky business trying to come up with um, what I consider cookbook worthy recipes. And, And anytime I get a chance to teach within a recipe, that's so that's my culinary gold. That's a great way to combine that. You know, I kind of think of recipes as snowflakes. There seems to be an endless supply of them, and they're all different in some way, shape, or form. I mean, either it's a little bit less of this, a little bit more of that, or in a particular recipe where you add something that's maybe never been added before, that yeah. changes the whole, you know, complexion of, of the dish. Is, is that kind of accurate? Yeah, it's really interesting because I think it is accurate. And I also, I'm not one of those cooks who believes in like the best way, the perfect way. Like I have my way and I like my way. So, you know, say we're roasting a chicken. There are so many ways to roast a chicken and, and sure, you'll get different results. And as a cook, it's all about trying to figure out what results you're after. And I mean, you're your listeners certainly when you come down to grilling and barbecuing there are a lot of ways to go at it and everyone has their secrets and their secret sauces and their secret techniques and i just think the the fun and the power and the joy of it comes from knowing what you're what you want the results to be and figuring out how to get them mm-hmm. how important is quality equipment to great cooking hmm well, I like to think that, you know, I'm the type of cook that you give me a butane burner and a beat up saute pan and I'll make you dinner. Um, <laughs> and having said that, if when it comes to, I guess I'm a minimalist. So if I could just have a few good pots and pans and two good knives, I'd be happy. So I think quality equipment in terms of heavy duty, if you cook a lot, is really helpful. Because I mean, a good cast iron pan, it doesn't have to be expensive, but that's a, you could, you can bake in it, you can grill in it, you can, you know, certainly fry in it, very useful. So I, I guess my, my answer is I do think it matters. Yeah. As long as you've got the, the basics for it. Because what happens to me is if I go into Williams Sonoma, Macy's, yeah. well, first of all, I, I'm kind of a Williams Sonoma anonymous member. <laughs> uh, because if I go in there, I know I'm going to buy something that I already have or that this looks better. And I'm kind of a, an, an equipment junkie because I, I think, you know what, I've, I've got to have that Cuisinart blender. Yeah. I've got to have that Cuisinart food processor that's 250 bucks, And I've got to have this new set of cookware that just came out. And uh, it, it's great to hear somebody at the level where you are in cooking to say, you know, good cast iron pan, and knives, which a lot of people don't talk about knives, and we haven't mentioned that here. And in barbecue, that's really critical, especially if you're trimming meat, to have a good, sharp knife. Yeah, yeah. I I think more people get cut by dull knives than sharp knives. Yeah, although you can cut yourself pretty badly (laughs) with a sharp knife. But again, you're you're absolutely right. You want to buy a decent knife and you don't need a lot i mean i i i have a couple knives that i use all the time and then you need to take care of them um and the same thing with your with your uh other equipment you know my cuisinart was my mother's 
it was one of the first generation Cuisinarts. And the thing, it won't die. It's got a motor like a, a beast. I've replaced the bowl a few times, but um, I did, I, recently someone was in my kitchen and they looked at my cutting board collection and apparently I have a thing for cutting boards. So I guess I do have one area weakness there. I love cutting boards. You know, the uh, the listenership here and the readership at StoryQ is, is really va- varied. I mean, we've got, you know, most of our people are backyard barbecuers and grillers, yep. but that's that's really a broad scope. I mean, it, it's a you know a broad brush if you want to paint that, because there's some people that are really into perfecting what they're doing out there. Then there's people who just like to go out, you know what, salt and pepper, throw it on a steak. Yeah, it looks done. It's done. If one of our listeners wants to take their cooking and grilling to the next level, what would that process look like for them? Hmm. That's such a great question. Um, and I, I have a couple uh, answers. Let me just uh, say by what I mean by next level is not necessarily going pro. Yep. Going from, you know, I can light the charcoal and I can grill a steak, but if I really want to make it into something special, yeah. you know, yeah. a, a recipe, whatever. Yeah, I think um, paying attention is <laughs> number one <laughs> in terms of grilling. Um, and that's why I think grilling is such a great way to understand cooking because you should keep an eye on things. You need to know, you know, what kind of heat level are you using? How hot is the grill? Where, you know, how thick is the piece of whatever it is you're cooking? So, so there's a certain awareness that I think is really important as opposed to just throwing it on and walking away. Um, also, I really believe in paying attention to your ingredients, where you're getting them, what the quality is. You know, it's tempting when you're standing there in the supermarket and you see the 12 pack of chicken thighs on sale. But is that chicken going to be as good as the one that is perhaps air chilled or, you know, not raised from somebody who you know what their practices are? So I really believe in the quality of ingredients, everything from, you know, the salt you buy to the, the vegetables that you use. Um, and so that's a big one for me. Um, and also, you know, pre-seasoning is huge when you're, especially if we're dealing with proteins, which a lot of grilling is. So um, animal proteins, even seafood, but just pre-seasoning it, whether it's just with salt or salt and pepper or a full-on spice rubber marinade will go a long way um, to improving your cooking, I think. You have written so many books. Um, and by the way, for those of you that are listening, uh, if you want to, while you're listening to this, to go to Molly's website, it's mollystevenscooks.com. And you can check out, I mean, it, her website's just full of content. And you can see all the cookbooks she has written. Do you think some of the recipes or techniques in your books could be a, adapted to barbecue, grilling, smoking, stuff like that? Absolutely. The two books, my two um, bigger books are, uh, the most recent one is all about roasting. And then the one before that was all about braising. And roasting and grilling, I mean, if you can roast it, you can grill it pretty much because it's, it's roasting is cooking something with dry, hot heat or uh, air. And that's a grill. Um, so in the roasting book, I talk about low heat roasting, high heat roasting, immediate uh, medium heat, combination heat, all what you and your listeners and readership talk about when you're grilling. So it's very similar um, approach. And when I talk about roasting, it's really about understanding your oven and where the hot spots are and how your oven runs, which is just like talking about grilling. So I would say those recipes are almost direct, um, you know, could directly be, be 
use for a grilling. When it comes to braising, then you're going to get more into the uh, slow cook barbecue and braising implies liquid involved so um that's a little trickier but certainly the flavor profiles and everything else would transfer to barbecue when you talk about roasting you mentioned the hot spots in an oven i have racked my brain and i cannot figure out where hot spots are in an oven why wouldn't it you know you turn it to 350 why isn't it 350 all over the place and how do you find out where it's cooler or hotter yeah i know um and it depends on the oven not like I think these days ovens are so much superior when you think back to, like I think of my, you know, my mom's oven where I don't even know if it had temperatures. It just would say bake, roast, broil on it, right? Um, I did see something recently where you put a baking sheet, uh, you know, cookie tray, and you put a, a thin layer of flour on it, just white flour all purpose, and slide it into the oven and bake it and watch it and you'll see it will brown in different areas is an interesting way to get hot spots. Um, I think more for what people, what I really mean to look for is, you know, is the bottom hotter than the top? Are the sides hotter, the the back hotter than the front? That's more typically what you're going to find than, you know, little pinpoint hot spots. I I think that's genius of taking your cookie sheet, putting in some flour and I, I would have never. Well, that's yeah. why I'm not a professional chef like you are. Well, I, I can't take I can't take credit for it. Unfortunately, I can't remember where I where I heard about it. But but I think it's a good a good. Yeah. <laughs> You're the first person to mention it on the Story Cube podcast. There you go. <laughs> what advice would you give to one of our listeners who was really serious about cooking? They have a passion for it. They've been cooking at home or cooking for friends, and the results have been wow. And somebody says, boy, you should be doing this for a living. What's the process of, of turning passion into profession? Is it just going for it, going to a restaurant, culinary school, all of the above? Oh, great question. Um, I think, you know, it's, I still get asked if I want to open a restaurant, and I... I'm not at a point in my career or life where I'm interested in doing that. Um, I would suggest getting a job in a restaurant or even if it's an internship, just to spend a couple weeks, a couple months working a regular shift to get a sense of um, the grind because it is a grind. And um, I'm not to say it's not, it can't be a joyful one, but it's a, it's a real game changer from cooking at home or cooking for your friends or even, even catering because there is a day to dayness of it that um, isn't for everybody. And it can take some of the joy and pleasure out of it if, if, or it can just fire you up. Um, And I know many people who, who walked into a kitchen, a restaurant kitchen, and they just knew this is where they needed to be. So um, I really think the first step is to see if you can't get some shifts on a regular basis where you just have to keep being there and to see if you like it. And then if you do, you know, culinary school is a great way to sort of jumpstart, but it's, it's, not necessary depending on you know your finances and what you can afford and how much other education you have um if you're interested in running a restaurant then you need business experience in my in my uh, opinion so and the other thing that's so amazing now is food is just blown up i mean you you know we talked about julie child earlier and you just think about the progression of food over the past three decades in in um, this country and as a result there's so many other avenues for food um i mean when i was coming up there what food writer wasn't even really a term. 
Um, and, you know, now there's just, there's food everywhere. And so I'm always amazed at some of the things that people come up with. I was just talking to someone who is doing an event company. So she, they organize events and they cook the food for the events. And so it's kind of a catering, but it's more than just catering. Um, lots of opportunities. One of the things that seem to be kind of percolating at the surface of, of popularity, and I haven't heard much of it lately, were pop-up restaurants. Yeah, yeah. And I know there was a few going on in the San Francisco area, which is kind of a foodie haven anyhow. Sure. Um, but, you know, I think you can kind of have a little pop-up restaurant in your backyard. You don't have to charge for it unless your guests are willing to chip in if you're doing something really extravagant. But, you know, you can just invite some friends over and say, I'm going to experiment and we're going to have this, 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 lay out a whole menu as if you were, you know, the executive chef of your own restaurant, which you are, yeah. and and just have some fun with it. Select the wine, uh, the beer, whatever, whatever everything calls for, and just have a good time and, and concentrate on the food, like you say, pay attention. Yeah, that, and that, that's, Frank, that's a great um, point because the pop-up thing is, is real and it's happening and people are doing it and some of them end up turning into restaurants and then others, you know, go away <laughs> and that's, that's okay. I think, you know, one of the ways if, if someone really wants to get a job at a restaurant and sometimes you walk in, you go, hi, are you looking for any help? And they go, no, we're not. Right. And, you know, it's easy to get turned away and discouraged. And I remember when I was... My background is radio, and when people ask me, how do I get a job at a radio station? Well, you know, I live in the Denver-Boulder area, which is a top 25 market, so it's going to be real tough for you to get a job without experience in a major market. But if you go to a small town in a small market, or, you know, uh, maybe just a cafe, maybe a breakfast place, and if you walk in there and you talk to the manager or the owner, if you can, and you say, I love cooking. I'd be willing to work here for free just to learn and to try out for 30 days. And if you like me, hire me. If not, you know, we can part ways. I think, I think it's a great way to get a foot in the door and yeah. to tell an owner or, or, uh, or a general manager that you have that passion and you're serious. You're just not looking for a paycheck. You're looking for a career. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love that you mentioned breakfast place because a lot of, Younger people or people who want to get into the food business, you know, we see so much fantastic food on TV and in all the magazines and all the, you know, food porn that's out there that, you know, we all think we immediately are going to be cooking five star, three star, whatever it is, meals. And, you know, you, as we all know, you need to learn to crawl before you can walk. So, you know, breakfast cooks, that's that's tough cooking cooking eggs for people and it, it may not have the glamour and you're like oh i want to be doing you know something fancier but if you can if you can master cooking eggs for people you're ready to go to the next step so it, it, it a lot of cooking is just mechanics um stamina and technique and you can learn that pretty much any place you're cooking from scratch and i think that to me you know, back to your question earlier about taking your cooking to the next level, this goes without saying is you need to be cooking from scratch, meaning buying ingredients, breaking them down and turning them into food as opposed to buying things already. And so if you walk into a restaurant and they're just opening cans and opening the freezer, sure, you're going to learn some things there, but you're going to learn a lot more if you're if, if there's real food, whole food coming in the back door. Yeah, exactly. And heat it up, hopefully. Exactly. I mean, you know, I wanna, when you mentioned that, I inter instantly thought of um, 
what is it called? It's now called Restaurant Rescue, but Michael Irvin on the Food Network, where he goes into these places that are just doing a horrible business, and he uh, tries to turn them around in two days with his $10,000 budget. And the first thing, one of the first things he does is he goes back into the kitchen, and invariably, when they're doing a horrible business, it's coming out of a can, or it's coming out of the freezer, and it's not fresh ingredients. And there's yep. such a huge, huge difference between the two. Yep, yep, absolutely. And there, you know, there are a few products that, sure, you, you know, you might need to use for economic reasons or whatever. But the 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 further you can push that boundary with fresh food, well, there's the great the results. Are there's be. great things that come out of a can. For instance, beer. <laughs> Which and that goes really cooking. well with barbecue. It does. It's a great cooking ingredient, a marinade, if you will. Exactly, and, and braising liquid and all of that. You mentioned braising, and you mentioned uh, some of your books, and the newest book is on roasting. You have so many books. If a listener wanted to buy one, which would you recommend that they try out first? Ah, that's a great question. Again, um, I am going to have to say the roasting book because it's a more straightforward. Um, and the thing about these books is even though there's a, a big prime rib on the cover, um, it's also filled with vegetables and pro, uh, poultry and seafood even. So I would say the book all about roasting. You mentioned prime rib and the Christmas holiday is coming up, and I know a lot of people cook prime rib, and if they're not going to cook it on a smoker or on a grill, but do it in the oven. Any tips as to get it, how to get it to become the best prime rib they've ever had? What I do, um, and you can find the recipe in the book, um, is no, I start out with a blast of hot heat. So uh, I, first I start two days ahead of time, and I season the prime rib. So I season it with salt and pepper, and I, I use a little dried mustard and rosemary because that's what my family has always done. Um, so I season it a couple days ahead, and that just does amazing things for the meat. And then I turn the oven way up high, about 450, put the roast in, and then as soon as I hear it start to sizzle, about 20 minutes, I turn it down um, to a more moderate temperature, around 325, and let it cook slowly. Um, and then I always have a meat thermometer around so I can tell when it's done. And the beautiful thing about the prime rib for a family is that, or for a group, is that you've got the ends are going to be a little more well done. And then the, 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 the center of the roast is going to be nice and um, rare for folks who like it that way. And then always, always, always let your meat rest after you take it out of the oven or off the grill. What's a good time? Let's say you pull a prime rib out. It's at 125, 130 degrees for, for nice, medium, rare. How long should you let that rest? She's Frank, I, I, I let it rest for a good 40 minutes. Wow. I really do, especially something big like that. I just, um, and I know people, sometimes they hear that and they think, oh, it'll be cold. First of all, it's not going to be cold because it's a big piece of meat and it's got a lot of thermal energy going. Um, but the difference between cutting right into something and letting it rest. Um, and the bigger the roast, the longer I let it rest. So um, I really, I think half an hour is a minimum for me. So, and if you're worried about, you can tent it. The only thing about tenting it is it does, the, it, it steams a little bit, but, but the, it's going to be okay if you're really worried about holding the temperature. Um, and then I just always make sure if you're, you know, I, I'm not a big hot, hot food person. If you hot food, soup should be hot, but, and sauces, but I think food has taken, um, I think we go a little overboard trying to get everything too hot and we, we, you don't get the full, um, it's not the best it can be necessarily. Wow. That's a great comment. I'm glad you made that. Speaking of prime rib, I've got, I've got a little prime rib story for you. And this goes yeah. to 
not just, you know, you can have the best equipment, you can have the best ingredients, you can be taking a recipe right out of your cookbook, but if you're not paying attention and you're distracted, things can go horribly wrong. And a couple of, maybe 10 years ago, I was having a Christmas party and it was Christmas Day. 12 people are coming over. And I went out to the local butcher shop. I wanted to get a prime rib, but I wanted to get, I didn't want to get select or USDA uh, choice. I wanted prime. And went out, I bought a 12-pound prime rib. Uh, back in that day, it was close to 200 bucks. Yeah. So, I, you know, I really want to do a good job with this thing. It's an expensive cut of meat, and it's going to be the main course. And um, so I scour the food network for some kind of marinade or, uh, or, or glaze or something I can put on, on top of this thing instead of just plain old salt and pepper, which works incredibly well. So I find this kind of a, a mixture on, on Emeril's, one of Emeril's recipes where it's basically garlic and olive oil and rosemary and put it all in a, a food processor, blend it up into this paste and then cover this whole thing. Well, I was also going to grill this on my gas grill. So I was using kind of your method. Get it up really high, put the roast in for, you know, 10, 15 minutes, then turn it down. So I do all those things. I've got it in, I close the lid, I go back inside, and there's a football game on. <laughs> and I start watching football. And the next thing I know, I see my backyard is filled with smoke. No. And I, I forget. I went, oh, my God, the rib. And I run outside. There is smoke billowing out from the grill, flames shooting out the side. As I open the lid, the rib is on fire. Uh. All that oil and everything that was on uh. top in that paste is burning. And I freak out. I run into the house. Luckily, I had a clean spray bottle. Put some water in it. Shut it down. I, I obviously I had to let the grill cool down so I could relight it. Anyhow, this thing looks like a charred mess, and now it hasn't shrunk up. But I'm going. What am I going to do here? And I check the temp. It's still got a little bit of a ways to go. I start the thing up. The guests arrive. I pull the prime rib off, and I tell people. Here's what I did. I made this horrible mistake. I don't know if Domino's still delivers on Christmas Day, but we're going to try this. It was the best prime rib I've ever had. <laughs> it's awesome. And you probably couldn't recreate it. No, it had this, you know, incredible crust on the outside, which went down maybe an eighth of an inch. Yeah. But inside, the flavor was just incredible. And yeah. people were just going, how did you do this? I'm going... Don't try that at home. You light it on fire. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, you caught it just in time. I guess. You know, the, uh, the cooking so, gods were on my side for that Christmas day. So that's so my prime weird. rib story. There's a funny old story. It's how do you cook roast beef? And you buy two, two roasts and you put them in the oven. And when the first one's burnt, you, you serve the second one. <laughs> Something like that. I don't remember. But That sounds like a good plan. If you have, especially if you have two ovens or you can fit two roasts in. Exactly. Molly's book is called, what is the title of the book? I know it's about roasting, but... All About Roasting. All About Roasting by Molly Stevens. And you can go to Molly Stevens or, uh, yeah, mollystevenscooks.com. And uh, the book, I'm sure, will be available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble as an e-book or, or uh, actual real book. Hold it in your hand. Yes, very much. Very real book.
Is that out now, or will is it is it forthcoming? It, it is out now, and uh, it's available at um, all the major bookstores and even some independents. So it makes a great Christmas present. It sure does, and a great, great suggestion at that, especially if you want to just give yourself a great Christmas present. There you go. So, again, it's mollystevenscooks.com. Our guest has been Molly Stevens, an extraordinary chef, an extraordinary writer, and uh, just a really nice person, as you can tell by listening to this podcast. Molly, thank you so much. Thanks, Frank. Have a great holiday season. You too. Merry Christmas and a very, very happy and successful new year to you. You too. Bye-bye. Well, that wraps up another Story Cube podcast and our final show for 2015. But fear not, we will be back in the new year. As we close out our podcast and the year, all of us at Story Cube magazine just want to take a moment to wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And we also want to thank you for your support throughout 2015. Whether you're a subscriber to the magazine or the podcast or both, we truly and sincerely want to say thank you. If you'd like to subscribe to Story Q's podcast, just go to iTunes, click on the podcast button, do a search for Story Q and our logo will pop right up. You can also find the Story Q podcast at soundcloud.com slash To subscribe to the digital magazine, the monthly digital magazine, just click on storyq.com. That's S-T-O-R-Y-Q-U-E dot com and sign up. On behalf of Laverne Gingrich, our publisher, I'm Frank Erickson, wishing you the merriest of Christmases and the happiest new year ever. I'll talk to you next year with the premiere edition of the 2016 Story Q podcast. Until then, thanks for listening and God bless. (laughs) 